Good, good morning, Arcadia. It'll be fine. Thank you. Thank you, Jared. Would you guys uh, pray with me before we get started? Lord God, we have a, we have a passage today that we're going to be looking at in Romans that tends to rub against the grain of everything that we think we know about life. And so God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd open our hearts, our minds, our eyes, and our ears to your truth and help us to understand that there is hope and rejoicing in all of life, including the dark times, the tough times, the suffering and the affliction, because ultimately we are placing our faith in you through your son, Jesus Christ. We ask that in his name this morning. Amen. Well, if you are new this morning, and I know uh, uh, I, I've seen some faces that I'm not familiar with, so you might be new. My name is Frank, and I'm uh, one of the pastors here, and I'm the primary communicator on Sunday morning. Usually you will see me uh, up here on Sunday morning. And what we've been doing at all of the Redemption churches, if you were wondering, Redemption is one church with, with six congregations, and we're the Arcadia congregation. What we've been doing since Easter is going through the book of Romans verse by verse. And last week we started Romans chapter 5, and we really just looked at verse 1 and talked about the peace of God, I'm sorry, the peace that we have now with God. And today we're going to expand on that uh, using verse 1 as, as sort of our foundation. We're going to look now primarily at verses uh, 2 through 5. David read 1 through 5, but we're going to look primarily at 2 through 5. Uh, just a little bit of background on chapter 5. Uh, Paul wrote chapter 5 to let believers, Christians, know of the security that they have in Christ. The security that the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, brings to them. And that they can, they can rejoice and have hope in the security that they have. But he also wrote Romans chapter 5 to speak of the blessings that we also have in Christ. The blessings that come with the gospel. So Romans chapter 5 is about security and blessing, and we're going to look at both of those things today. And, and last week I talked about, uh, I, said, I said these are specifically the things that we would discuss. We're going to talk about the access that we have. You, you heard that in, in verse 2. We're going to talk about the grace in which we now stand. We'll talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk about why it is that we rejoice. We're going to talk about glory. We're going to talk about hope. And we're going to talk about suffering, endurance, and character. And yes, there is blessing in suffering for the believer. And I want you to understand that I know that this is a tough sell. This is the particular part that sort of rubs against everything that we think we know about life. And everything that we understand the world to be telling us about our suffering. And it's also... It's also coming from somebody who readily confesses and admits that my idols in life, the things that I struggle to keep from placing above God, my idols happen to be comfort and convenience, which would be the exact opposite of suffering. But I've also experienced suffering. I've experienced affliction, just like everybody else in this room has. And I've seen God work through it. And I understand that there is something bigger that there is meaning and purpose in our suffering, that there is, a, there is something that it's flowing into that's bigger than we are, and we can rejoice and have hope in that. And we're going to talk a lot about that today. 
But before we get there, let's start by looking again at verses 1 and 2. I just want to read them, and then we'll talk a little bit about them, then we'll hit 3 and 4, and eventually 5. Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We finally have peace with God. We've been at war with God. Now, through Jesus Christ, we have peace. But through Him... Through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So last week, we talked about this idea that we have peace with God. Through faith in Jesus Christ and our justification as a, re- as a result of that, uh, we now have been made whole with God. That last song that we just sang, it sings about how we've been made with whole uh, with God through His love, His love expressed in Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. We've been made whole. Last week we talked about how it's, it's a form of integrity when we have wholeness with God. We no longer are incomplete. We no longer are fragmented. We no longer uh, have flaws. We no longer are missing something. We have integrity. We're whole. We are no longer disintegrated. We are no longer blown apart. We're no longer looking to put the pieces together. God has put the pieces together for us. And now we have perspective and purpose in our life. And then verse 2 tells us that because we have this peace, and as a result of this peace, and not only do we have this peace, but we also have access into this grace in which we now stand. And this grace in which we now stand, it's interesting that the, the Hebrew says, I'm sorry, the Greek says this grace. And upon further inspection, you see that really what Paul is talking about is, is this grace in which we stand is like, it's a body, it's, it, it's, it's a realm. We have left the old realm and we're in this new realm. We are a part of God now. We've been absorbed into God. Christ lives in us. We're part of His body, we're part of His being, we're part of His life. We stand in this grace now. And as a result of that, this is really important. We have to understand that because we stand in this grace of God, this peace that we have with God is not a passive peace. It's not passive. It's very active. There's stuff that's going on. There's relationship and community. It's not like, okay, I'm forgiven of sin now. God's going to do his thing. I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to leave him alone. He's going to leave me alone. It does not work that way. It's not a tentative, wary peace. It is an active peace where there's partnership and fellowship and community. The New Testament calls it koinonia. We're part of his body. We are in Christ now. And this grace in which we now stand and have access to, it transforms who we are. We are new creations in Christ And there is active fellowship and relationship. There's provision and protection. And let me say a word about this provision and protection. Not only do we have the provision and protection of God, but also once we become believers, we become a part of the community of faith, or at least we should. And we begin to hang around with other people who share this faith of ours. We don't exclusively hang around with Christians. God tells us to go and be salt and light to the rest of the world as well. But if you're not part of a faith community, if you're not hanging around with other believers, if you're not in a redemption community doing life with other believers, you are going to miss out on some of the protection and provision that God has for you. Because God will provide for you and protect you through his people as well. And you need to be there. 
And those of you who are in communities or small groups or, or regular places where you're doing life with other believers, you know that this is true. You, you know that when your life hits affliction and crisis and when you're in trouble, you know you can count on them to provide for you and protect you. That's the Holy Spirit working through His body for you in your life. This is part of the grace in which we have access to and in which we now stand. We're new creations with mission and purpose fueled by this bold and confident access to God. And this access to God that we have is not only discussed here in Romans 5, but Paul talks about it in Ephesians as well, chapter 3. And the author of Hebrews talks about it as well in his letter. So this is not just some little thing that Paul is bringing up. This is, this is a major point that we find in New Testament theology and we should embrace it and apply it to our lives. There's a great Old Testament account. It's one of my favorite books. One of my favorite uh, things to teach out of the Old Testament It's the book of Esther. I, I love it. And, and, and Esther, the, the, the story of Esther takes place about 480 B.C. So I don't know, 25, 2600 years ago. And it takes place in the midst of the Persian Empire. The Babylonian exile has ended. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar and, and his, his um, reign and, and the, the people who took over for Nebuchadnezzar, they have been uh, long taken over by the, uh, the Medes and the Persians. And by 480, Persia is the greatest empire in the world, and it's led by a guy named Xerxes, King Xerxes, one of the all-time great warrior kings in history. He's in charge. And, and when the Persians defeated the Babylonians in five, uh, 539, over the next several years, they allowed the Jews who were in Babylon, who were held in captive, uh, captivity in Babylon, they allowed them to start going back to Jerusalem to rebuild Jerusalem. But not all the Jews went. In fact, most scholars would tell you that the vast majority of them remained there and then eventually moved even further east to a place called Susa, which was kind of the center of the Persian Empire. And this is where we find a bunch of Jews at that time. And this story is important for that reason. And the reason the book is called Esther is because it's also about this woman named Esther. Uh, you learn in chapter 1 that King Xerxes had this wife named Vashti, and, and Vashti apparently uh, disobeyed a command of her husband. It was a dumb command. He was drunk when he made it, but she stood up to him, and he decides that she's not going to be his wife anymore. And so later on, the story tells us, well, now he's missing his wife, so his buddies get around him, his cabinet, his advisors, and they say, well, we have an idea. We're going to get you a new wife. And here's how we're going to do it. We're going to have a reality TV show called Top Bride. And we're going to bring in 400 of these women. This is kind of what it looks like, I'm telling you. It wasn't on TV. It wasn't on Facebook or anything. But this is essentially what they did. And, and they kind of had auditions. Okay? And of all these women in the entire Persian Empire that came, Esther gets chosen. And Esther happens to be Jewish. Nobody knows this at the time. But she's not Persian. She's Jewish. But she gets chosen. She's the one that Xerxes finds favor in. The problem is, is that there was some enmity between Xerxes' number two guy, a guy named Haman. You're supposed to boo every time somebody says the name Haman. This guy named Haman, there you go. Anyway, he, he does not like Jews. And there's one Jew in particular he really doesn't like. His name is Mordecai. Mordecai happens to be Esther's uncle. 
So he gets mad at Mordecai, comes up with this decree that he gets Xerxes to sign where they're going to commit genocide against all the Jews in the entire Persian Empire. They're going to wipe them out. And, it's, and they, they, they proclaim the date. It's going to be in nine months. We're going to do this on this particular date. And now Mordecai, he sends a note to Esther, who is now living in, in, the, uh, in the palace. And he says, hey, man, you've you got to go and talk to your husband about this. You're our only hope. The problem is, is that the Persian law would not allow anybody, even a spouse, unfettered access to the king for any reason whatsoever. If you wanted to talk to the king, you had to be summoned by the king. It had to be his idea. And if you tried to get an appointment with the king on your own without his permission, he could have you executed even if you're his wife. So, so the wife of the king in Persia couldn't even say, hey, let's go have a cup of coffee together. Couldn't even do that. Didn't even have that access. And the story tells us that Esther had not been invited into the presence of the king for at least a month. Been too busy sitting on his throne, signing other decrees. So she says, I don't really want to go. I'm, take, I'm, I'm probably be executed if I try to approach him to talk to him about this. Mordecai persists, and eventually she says, all right, I'm going to go, and if I die, I die. She prayed and fasted and, and went. And she, she went, and the king found favor in her, and he granted her the access. He, he tipped his scepter to her and said, you can, you can come into my presence. And the story goes on that she, through her uh, maneuvering and, and through God's providence, she was able to help save the Jews. Now we can think of this story, and a lot of people do think of this story when we think about the access that we have to God, but we need to be mindful that there is a huge difference between the access that Esther had with Xerxes and the access that you and I have with God. Esther was beautiful. Physically, she was without flaw. She was stunning. She could stop chariot traffic if she stood on the corner. She had a Wonderful character and personality. During the, during the top bride contest, they, uh, the people that worked with her found delight in her. And the king liked Esther. She had qualities that, that, that he found pleasing to him. And he had already lost one wife through his stupidity. And maybe that was in the back of his mind too. He didn't want to go through that again. So the king found merit in Esther because she brought him pleasure. But this access that you and I have to God has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with our merit. Because we don't have any merit. The only merit we have is because we are in Christ. We've been saved by faith because of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. It's all Jesus. There's a big difference there. We have access to God because someone else has gracefully, mercifully, sacrificially provided that gift for us. And that's why we worship Jesus. That's why he's a big deal to us. That's why we praise him. That's why we give him our lives. And it's one reason why Paul says in verse 2 that we rejoice. And be sure to note this. I mentioned this last week. I want to mention it again. When he says that we rejoice, he's not making a command. He's merely stating a, a fact of life. If you have peace with God and access into his grace... You're going to rejoice. 
You should rejoice. Christians should be people of joy. What one scholar says this, he says, peace and joy are the twin blessings of the gospel. And these are things that we don't go and find and that we don't work for or that we don't figure out. They're just simply gifts from God. We simply receive these things through Jesus Christ. And it changes who we are. And it's part of our identity. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to this, how the author of Hebrews talks about this in chapter 10. Starting in verse 19, he writes, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You understand, the author of Hebrews is saying the same thing. We have access to God, but it's all about because of what Christ has done to us and for us and through us. And it's through this faith that we have access. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. This access gives us hope. For he who promised is faithful. The reason the promise is good is because the one backing the promise is God and he is faithful and he's holy and he is true. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So because of Jesus, we have peace with God, we have access to God, and we have right standing before God. And we are secure in this faith. And as a result, we can face any circumstance with the joy of the Lord, even though we're probably not going to be happy about all the different circumstances that we're going to face. But we can face it with joy. And we'll get to that in just a second. Those are, that's verses 3 and 4. But, but before we do that, I want to first talk about what Paul is saying that we rejoice in. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God And I want to understand what glory is. In this instance, this glory that we are going to receive is what scholars say is is eschatological. It comes at the end. When we're in heaven, when we're in the new Jerusalem with God, we will share in his glory. But we need to remember it's God's glory. We get it. We're going to share in it. We're going to be glorified. But it's God and we need to, it's God's glory and we need to recognize that. And, and that word that we translate as, as glory is doxus. And it literally means honor, value, and weighty. The word glory can actually be interpreted or translated as heavy. In the 60s, they would say God is a heavy dude. It's because he has this glory, this weightiness, this worth, this value. And to Worship God and to rejoice in God is to recognize His glory, to recognize His true worth, to recognize His true value, to recognize His true weightiness. And it's funny because Scripture talks about idols, things that we tend to substitute for God, that we look to instead of God, that we worship instead of God, that we prioritize instead of God. Scripture says that all idols are worthless, void, and weightless, but God is valuable, weighty, heavy and worthy and he shares that with us in the new Jerusalem but we got to get there first and that's where hope in another thing 
actually comes in because there's other hope that we have that's in this passage. Paul tells us in verse 2 that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, that that glory is going to come to us in a tangible way, but then in verses 3 and 4, he also tells us that we rejoice and have hope because of suffering. We rejoice and we have hope because of suffering. You read those two verses again. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. The suffering we go through is going to produce something. It's going to produce something bigger than we are. It has meaning for us. And we see the progression there, and we'll go through the progression. There's suffering that makes, that makes us persevere and endure, and that produces character, and then that leads to hope, and I see all that progression there, but I would argue to you that the most important word in those two verses is the word translated knowing. Paul says that we know this. And the reason this is important is because we look at these verses. I used to look at these verses and think they were about me. But the reality is, is that we know that God is going to do this work in us by the power of his Holy Spirit, by the power of the resurrected Christ, by faith in him. We know that this is going to happen. So really, these are verses about God. They're verses about his sovereignty, his majesty, his power, his promises, and his glory. We're involved. We're there. But these verses are really about God. It reminds me, later on we're going to get to a verse in chapter 8. It's, many people would say this is their favorite verse. It's 8.28, Romans 8.28. All things work together for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That's usually the way we remember that verse. The problem is, is that that's not the whole verse. When we remember the verse like that, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, that makes the verse about us, right? But that's not the whole verse. The verse starts this way. And we know that in God, all things work together. That verse is not about us. It's about God and his sovereignty because we know this. We can't know this about ourselves because we don't have the power. We can know it about God, though, because he has the power. He's the one who's made the promise, and he is sovereign. There's a guarantee, and the guarantee is backed up by him. That's pretty heavy. And it is because we know this, that this promise that suffering produces something good, because we know it's going to be meaningful to us, we realize that Christian joy in suffering is not stoic determination to make to, to try and make the best of a nasty situation, but rather suffering for the Christian is a source of joy because its purpose is to build character and hope. And hear me on this. I am not saying that when life stinks for you, you're supposed to go out and frolic in a meadow singing happy songs. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying put on a false joy. I'm saying that inside of you, your soul is going to know that God is working something meaningful for you. And even though you are under this pressure of the suffering and the affliction, you know that something good is coming out of that. And so you rejoice inwardly. You can rejoice and you can, you can understand that something good is coming. And here's the deal about suffering. 
it's amazing how many people I run into who really think that they can figure out how to avoid suffering in their lives. Can we not just admit that suffering is inevitable in life, please? Can I get one amen this morning on that? Suffering is inevitable, right? We can't avoid it. It's going to happen. There's no constitutional right to avoid suffering. Just because you're guaranteed the right to pursue happiness doesn't mean that you're not going to suffer. In fact, very often our pursuit of happiness is what brings a lot of our suffering. Suffering is absolutely inevitable. And suffering is a condition that is brought about by sin. And sin is everywhere. I have suffered greatly in my life because of my sin. I've also suffered greatly in my life because of the sin of others. And so have you. And we also suffer because original sin has corrupted this earth. We suffer for that reason as well. It's sin. We're going to suffer. But for the Christian, because of the power of the resurrected Christ, suffering can be redeemed. That's our hope. And that's what we rejoice in. And so this progression, it looks like this. When we suffer, now, when we talk about suffering or affliction or trials in the Bible, in, in the New Testament, we're talking about a number of different things. We're talking about tribulation. We're talking about injustice. We're talking about being marginalized. We're talking about being oppressed. We're talking about persecution and pain. And, believe it or not, the Word also talks about the fact that when we are tempted by sin, that is a form of suffering. When you've got that one sin that you know is very difficult for you to stay away from, to not engage in, and you're battling that, there's suffering, there's tribulation that we go through in that. It's all of these things. And, and literally, the word suffering means to be pressed under. We're pressed under by these things. We feel the weight of the suffering. We are under pressure. Well, that pressing under produces a kind of strength over time through faith in Jesus Christ. It produces endurance. This is one of my favorite New Testament words. It's hupomene. And, and throughout the New Testament, it's, in, it's, it's translated as different words. It's translated as endurance. It's also translated as perseverance. It's also translated as patience. Patience and per perseverance, kind of the different sides of the same coin. And then my personal favorite, it's also translated steadfast or steadfastness. That's not a word we use very much today, but it's a great word. This suffering produces steadfastness, the ability to endure and hang in there and to stand strong. And the word hupomene literally means strength under fire. It's like we go from fire to fire to fire. We're in this crucible of life that heats us up. It's spiritual aerobics. And that produces character. This endurance re results in character. And, and the Greek word for character, dokamine, is literally this, that which has been proven by trial. Character is proven by trial. You don't just wake up one day and go, eh, I got character today. It's proven by trial over and over and over. Anybody golf in here? We had virtually no golfers in the first service. Praise Jesus. Any golfers? Now you're not going to raise your hand. Oh, now, now ah, I'm raising my hand. Pastor, all right? 
Okay, I'm going to hack on golf a little bit here, all right? People say that golf is a wonderful character revealer, okay? Why is that? Well, here's why. Golf is frustrating. Golf is long. Golf is expensive. Golf is hard. And golf is boring, okay? <laughs> so it's a great character revealer. I've been golfing before, and I've, I've seen people just lose it. Words coming out of their mouths that I've never heard before. You know, golf clubs flying places. Red face. And that was just me. It's not the other people. That's me, okay? And the reason it reveals our character is because there's that, you can start to feel that pressure, the stress, and all that stuff. I spent $150 to do this. I'm supposed to be having fun. I'm not, okay? It's a great character revealer. And I'll tell you, in my life, when my character, the bad parts of it have been revealed, that's very painful, right? It can be really painful. But, but in that pain, there's also the potential for redemption. Character can also be built by being revealed. As trials reveal who we are, and now I'm not talking about just golf, I'm talking about serious trials, the trials and tribulation and suffering and affliction that life brings us. Those trials will reveal who we are. And as we see the flaws bubble up and we make mistakes, by the power of God's grace and by his wisdom, we can learn from them and purge them. And the next time, we're better able to handle that trial. I can't tell you how many times I've been in the trial, the suffering, and I've reacted badly. And then the next time, I can say, I see what's coming, I know what's coming, and by the strength of God, I know I can react differently this time. And maybe even redeem this situation. What was once hopeless is now filled with, with hope. But you have to do this over and over and over. God puts us through this stuff. You see, character is not a spiritual gift. It's not something that you and I can produce. It's not something that we can purchase at a store. We cannot download character from the internet. You can't go to Walgreens and get a character patch and put it on your arm and have it absorb into your body. It doesn't work that way. It is developed through the fire of life. If you want to turn over to James chapter 1, it's to the right, past all of the other letters of Paul. It's nearly impossible to look at this passage and not think of James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4. And the similarities that are there. And understand this. Uh, Romans and James were written 12 to 15 years apart in different cities. James and Paul did not get together one day and go, hey man, this would be really cool if we both put this in our letters. 2,100 years from now, there's going to be this guy named Frank in a place ar called Arcadia comparing these two passages, isn't that? They did not do that. This is by the power of the Holy Spirit that this is just true. Listen to this passage. James writes, Count it all joy, my brothers. There you go. Rejoice. Rejoice when the suffering comes. Rejoice when the trials come. Rejoice when the affliction comes. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. That Greek word translated various kinds literally means multicolored. Because we know that trials in life come in all different shapes, sizes, and colors. And sometimes we have trials that make us red with anger, green with envy, Yellow with fear. 
I could go on, but you get the point. They come in all different shapes, sizes, colors, from all different directions. Rejoice when you meet these trials, for you know that the testing of your faith, not the testing of you, the testing of your faith, which has been given to you by Jesus Christ, the testing of your faith produces, there it is, there's that word, hupomene, steadfastness. Steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, when James uses those Greek words talking about testing your faith, literally what he's talking about are the same words that were used when they would talk about goldsmiths taking raw ore and eventually turning it into pure gold ore. And the way they would do that is they would dump it into a crucible, heat up the crucible, get the ore to melt, when the, when the ore melts, the pure gold goes to the bottom because it's heavier. The impurities rise to the top. It cools off, and you can scrape off the impurities. But you don't do this just once. You have to do it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And here's what God is telling us through James. He's saying life is a crucible, and you're going to get heated up. And you're going to go from fire to fire. And sometimes those fires are going to be layered on top of one another. Sometimes God doesn't give you just one fire at a time. He gives you multiple fires. But all of those are going to heat you up. And as you get heated up, as I get heated up, we're going to have our flaws exposed. We're going to have our mistakes seen. And we're going to be able to look at those by the power and wisdom of God. And we're going to be able to brush those off. And it's going to produce in us a strength and a perseverance and a patience and a steadfastness that's going to result in us developing our character. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful image of the reality of life. But remember, he says this is done by faith. Not by anything we bring to the table. Not by our strength. It's done by the fact that we know Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And this leads to hope. It's part of our hope because we live and we learn and are tested and experience the power of the gospel in our lives. And we come to rely more and more on God and less and less on us. And that is real hope. That's real hope. It's the power of the sovereign God, the holy God, promising us that he's going to protect and provide us one way or another. I'll tell you something, I, I don't have a lot of hope in me anymore. Praise God. I used to. I used to, I used to. I used to place all of my hope in me. I can do it. If I can see it and believe it, I can achieve it, all that stuff. I can overcome my circumstances. I'm in control of my destination. I know what I need to do. I was all about that. Here's what Paul calls that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Foolishness. I was a fool because I rejected the wisdom of God and believed that my wisdom was the real thing. And then Jesus invaded and intervened in my life and the gospel took control of me. And now I understand it's foolish for me to hope in myself. It's wisdom to hope in God because that's real hope. That's true hope. It's hope that we can count on. And there's the source of joy. That's why we rejoice. 
Do we rejoice in the salvation we have that we're going to heaven? Yes, absolutely. But we also rejoice when we understand that God's promises give us true hope and we're reminded of that as he works in us and through us during our afflictions. Can God take you out of the suffering? Can he move you around the trial? Can he, can he help you to miss those things? Absolutely. He's sovereign and in his power he can do that. But, and sometimes he might even do that. But his normal MO is not to take you out of the suffering. He is to tell you, I am there with you in your suffering. And we rely on him. We have faith in him. And that faith gets tested as we're in that. There's a pastor named Lloyd Ogilvie. He was a pastor at uh, Hollywood Presbyterian for a number of years, a famous church. But even more famous, he was uh, the chaplain for Congress for a number of years. And a few years back, he wrote this. This past year has been the most difficult year of my life. My wife has been through five major surgeries, radiation treatment, and chemotherapy. I am thankful that I now know that she's going to make it. During the same year, I suffered the loss of several key staff members whose moves were very guided for them, but a source of pressure and uncertainty in my work. Problems which I could have tackled with gusto under normal circumstances seemed to loom in all directions. Discouragement lurked around every corner trying to capture my feelings. Does this sound familiar to anybody in here? Prayer was no longer a contemplative luxury, but the only way to survive. My own intercessions were multiplied by the prayers of others. Friendships were deepened as I was forced to allow people to assure me with words I had preached for years. Let me tell you a little something about that. There is nothing more meaningful, and this is not in any way, shape, or form to have, uh, trying to get you to come to me. I just understand what he's saying here. There is nothing more meaningful for a pastor when he starts to go through the tough times in life, when people in his congregation come to him and say, you know what, you preached on this once, and here's what you said. And so now I'm going to encourage you with those very words. And he gained a lot of encouragement as a result of that. He continues, no day went by without a conversation, a letter, or a phone call giving me love and hope. The greatest discovery that I have made in the midst of all the difficulties is that I can have joy when I don't feel like it. That's what we're talking about here. Peace, joy, hope. And it all crescendos in verse 5. It all comes together in verse 5. Look at at verse 5 again, Paul writes, And hope does not put us to shame. Some of your translations will say it this way, Hope does not disappoint us. Literally what it's saying is, Hope will not let you down. You, 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 can, you can put all your eggs into the basket of God's hope. That's what he's saying. Hope will not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is just like in James, where James says it's done by the testing of faith. It's done by the testing of the gospel. Paul says here, it's done by the Holy Spirit in us. The Holy Spirit that God has given to us because he has poured out his love into our hearts. 
This isn't our power, but it's God's power. It's the power of his love in, in our lives as expressly filled in us by the Holy Spirit. How, how many of us, I think all of us, we have desperately wanted for love to be poured out on us and to us and for us. We want that. Part of the human condition is that we want to be loved. The, the Greek word poured out literally means to be overwhelmed. That, that, that it just, it's just gushing over us. And we have this desire, and God says yes to that desire. And we have access to that. We stand in that grace, in that love, because of our faith in Jesus Christ, because of the finished work of Christ. It's a fairly well-known missionary to China from another uh, very large and famous Presbyterian church, 10th Presbyterian church in Philadelphia, named Jonathan Chow. And, and he's written about how um, the missionary work of Christians seem to go pretty well in the relatively friendly confines of pre-communist China in the late 19th century and early 20th century. So the last half of the 1800s, the first half of the 1900s, they had pretty much unfettered access to be able to go and be Christian missionaries and, and share their faith and to start churches. And he estimates that by 1950, when the communist regime took over in China, there were one million Christians in China. Since 1950, the Christian church in, in China has been brutally persecuted by the government there. And it is now estimated, estimated that there are more than 50 million Christians in China. The church has blown up as a result of suffering and affliction and persecution. And this parallels the, the growth of the early church the church 2,000 years ago, the church of the first, second, and third centuries. The same story occurred in the Roman Empire. Dur during those first 300 years of the church, the, the Roman government brutally persecuted Christians in the church. And they did that thing where they would dip them in oil and put Christians, put them on a stick and light their patios, and they would do the Colosseum thing with the lions, and they would burn them at the stake, and they would root them out, and they would execute them. They would execute them by crucifixion. And the church blew up. It grew so fast they couldn't keep track of it. But then around the year 312 when Constantine had his, his epiphany, the emperor Constantine had his epiphany, and, and, and he began to embrace the Christian church, and, he, and, and the government began to embrace the Christian church, that's when growth slowed down. When the affliction stopped, that's when the growth and the the blessings stopped. Dr. Chow recalls that a few years ago, there, there was a person visiting a, a church. He was a Christian missionary, and he had covertly gotten into China, and he was visiting an underground church. And he was, he was praying. He was leading prayer for the people there, and he was praying fervently that God would somehow end the persecution of the Christian church in China that, that he would make the government friendly toward the Christian church. And the pastor of that church was there listening to the prayer. And, and the pastor said later, it was everything he could do to keep from praying against that prayer because he believed it was the persecution that was making the church grow. A student once walked up to Dr. Chow and he said, Dr. Chow, if, if God really loves the, 
the church in China? Why does he allow it to suffer so much? And Chow answered the student by asking him a question. If God really loves the church in America, why doesn't he allow it to suffer? This is one of those tough times. This is one of those tough prayers. Are you praying for suffering, Frank? I don't know that I have to. I know it's coming. And the promise is is that God is going to redeem it and he's going to use it for something bigger and meaningful. We're going to move into our time of of response and reflection and we're going to take communion together. And I would invite the communion service to come forward now. The band can come up. But let me talk just a little bit about this. this. This sacrament called the Lord's Supper that we will take, it's the result of the greatest suffering that's ever occurred on the part of other people and that is through Jesus Christ. Hebrews says we have a great high priest in Jesus because He knew what it was like to be tempted but was without sin. He's also a great high priest because he suffered in ways that you and I will never suffer. And he he doesn't come to us. Jesus doesn't come to us and say, listen, quit complaining in your suffering. Look how much I suffered. I'm a bigger and better sufferer than you. That's not what he's saying. What he's doing is he's coming to us and he's saying, I understand. I get it. I've suffered too. I know what you're going through. But look what the Father has done through my suffering. My suffering has saved my people. He redeemed it. It was meaningful. There was something bigger. And so he promises us that there's something bigger and meaningful and purposeful in our suffering. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that we can rejoice because this suffering that we experience, our afflictions, is light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory that we're going to have in God. It's light and momentary. And I know you're sitting there going, man, when I'm suffering, and right now, I am suffering right now, and it feels like an eternity. I get that. I understand that. That's what it feels like. But compared to the eternal weight of glory, it's light and momentary. Schrader says it this way, no matter how bad it gets, it can only last a lifetime. And then you're with Jesus. And we have hope because of that. And so Jesus, on his last night before he was betrayed and before he suffered, he was having dinner with his disciples. And he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then later, after they had supped, he took the cup. And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. In my blood, shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Paul reminds us that as as long as we eat this bread and take this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. We proclaim his sacrifice, we proclaim his suffering, and we proclaim the redemption that we have as a result of it. 